This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, August 24th. I'm Gavin McGough. And I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Colorado Parks and Wildlife notes a changing season. Mountain Village approves new hotel development. Water is no worry for school district housing plan. And a mountain weather forecast. But first, we all have budget numbers in our head. The monthly Netflix bill, cable TV, your cell phone, and even what you might have spent on beer and food at the festivals this summer. Create your Kodo budget now and invest in your community radio station. Go to koto.org to donate. And thank you. It's late August, and not to alarm you, you may begin to see the first signs of a changing season. Come September, hunting for big game in Colorado will begin to open, and Rachel Srala, the field supervisor with Colorado Parks and Wildlife's Montrose office, says it could be a busy one locally. Because of an extreme winter and a lot of winter kill in the northwest, we are anticipating a lot more hunters here in the southwest region this fall in the archery season as well as in the -the over-the-counter rifle seasons. Swallow stopped by a meeting of the San Miguel County Commissioners to provide some regional wildlife updates as the natural world leans towards fall. Beyond the coming hunting season, a headliner in the local wildlife scene at the moment is bears. Swallow says preparations for hibernation will lead to an uptick in activity. We are seeing a rise in this time of year in bear conflicts. So a lot of reports of bears in towns, a lot of reports of bears on the move. Um, They're entering hyperphagia, where they're seeking 20,000 calories a day, is what we estimate, to prepare for hibernation. They're just trying to look, they are stomachs with a nose, looking for food sources, looking for easy calories to really pack on the pounds before they go into hibernation. At this point, the advice is familiar, but worth repeating. Remove all food from your cars and keep them locked. Secure any outdoor trash and lock your front doors as well. This advice comes after multiple bear home break-ins this year, one in Mountain Village and another in Telluride. And, says Srala, If a bear does get habituated and it walks into a home or enters a house, um, you know, physically breaks in as they're made to, they're made to tear stuff apart and get into it. Um, We have a lot of concerns that somebody will be in a really unsafe situation if a bear comes into a home and then somebody startles it, they're between the bear and the exit. A situation like that could be really dangerous. Human-bear conflict is not the only point of concern on this issue. Earlier this month, CPW efforts to trap and euthanize a bear deemed threatening received significant public pushback. Bear traps in Telluride were tampered with and wildlife officers were threatened. Srala says the decision to euthanize a bear is never taken lightly. It's a last resort. Wildlife officers, she adds. They don't work for the agency. They work for the wildlife and for the people of Colorado. And when they're in that situation, it's very difficult for them. They're catching a lot of heat that is, you know, nobody wants to deal with. But it's very personal and very targeted. Um, and that's really frustrating for us to to step into a situation that we don't want to be in. Srala notes CPW is also monitoring area wildlife-facing decline. Currently, the agency is creating a statewide deer management plan, which is open for public comment. Deer herds in Colorado are in decline. And while that may be surprising for such a ubiquitous animal, Srala says, We can all see the things that contribute to that. 
not only is it direct loss of habitat because of development across the range, um, but we're also dealing with a lot of other disturbances, recreation. Um, we're dealing with grazing competition with cattle and elk and all uh, just a host of things. It's probably a death by a thousand cuts. It's causing the decline of deer that we've had. CPW is also monitoring Gunnison sage grouse. A threatened species, the grouse has its biggest remaining range in Gunnison County, but there's a satellite population here in San Miguel. This year, it appears that population experienced a slight decline. Only half a dozen or so birds remain in San Miguel County. A new hotel in Mountain Village took a major step forward last week. Mountain Village Town Council approved the Six Senses hotel development on first reading in a 4-3 to three vote. The proposed hotel would sit on a lot just under one acre of land next to the Sharana and Westmere buildings on Mountain Village Boulevard. The project plans for 50 hotel rooms, 20 condos, and 31 lodge units. The development also plans for 18 dorm-style employee housing units with two employee apartments. There would also be retail, fine dining, a bar, a market, and a conference center wedding space. Luxury hotel brand Six Senses has shared their intent to operate the hotel. Mountain Village Town Council has been discussing the project for over a year. Over that time, there have been a number of contentious conversations between town staff, town council, and developers, with concerns regarding mass and scale, parking, trash, snowmelt, and public benefits. Here's Amy Ward, Community Development Director for Mountain Village. Back in June, um, there was a motion for denial on the table. That motion was withdrawn, and the item was continued to the hearing we have here today. Since then, the applicants have provided revisions um, and, can, and provided what we consider a complete application, inclusive of the majority of the legal agreements that we needed to review. And so at this point, um, we really have the benefit of being able to evaluate this PUD in its entirety. Since that June meeting, Mountain Village held an election and a new town council with two newly elected council members and a newly selected mayor heard the application. Avni Patel with the development team wants the council to recognize the developer's commitment to Mountain Village. I wanted to emphasize how committed our team is to this town. We own the property at 109R. We want to be a long-term committed partner with this town and community. We've been supporting different charities in town, and we are looking forward to other ways that our project with the six senses will give back to this community that we love. Adam Rafey, lead architect on the project, emphasizes the commitment to employee housing. We're contemplating creating a community for employees with attractive amenities, uh, integrating this employee base into the local community of Mountain Village. Briefly, I wanted to talk about the experience of living in these dorms. We feel it's going to be a high-end experience. Um, an experience that's akin to um, a, a uh, apartment building in a dense urban environment with the kind of amenities that you would find in uh, an environment like that, uh, perhaps including a kitchen and lounge, mm -hmm. a cinema, a gym, a library, a game room, a dedicated laundry area. Um, and on top of that, 
uh, you know, these employees get the incredible advantage of living in the core of Mountain Village, which, I mean, I think is an amazing opportunity for anybody. When considering approval or denial, town staff urge council to consider how the hotel will fit in Mountain Village, both physically on the lot and within the ethos of the community. During public comment, members of the community came down on both sides of the issue, but the majority was in support, including Chad Horning with Telluride Ski and Golf. We're trying to build a world-class community, and um, to have a developer come to the table that already owns their property and to suggest one of the top brands in the world to come to our community that's on brand and to um, to even debate whether that's an appropriate use of that site or it's appropriate for the community, I, I just don't see it. I don't understand it at all because it is. I can't even imagine a better use for that site. Cameron Kelly still has concerns about the mass and scale and also worries about the process and past contention with developers. This is very valuable real estate. So why would you risk something so important on a developer that has made every step of this process hard? They will offer everything except actual solutions or even small compromises and are combative every step of the way. A failed hotel or half-built or built incorrectly, or not up to standards of what was promised, poses a much greater risk and downfall to Mountain Village than anything else. Mountain Village Town Council was more evenly split. Three council members, including newly elected Scott Pearson, opposed the project. You know, a lot of the things that are listed as public benefits, I don't see as a public benefit. I see them as as mitigations or requirements of the, the construction. You know, as we've heard, they're going to be at least 150, maybe 200 employees. Finding a place for some of them doesn't strike me as a huge public benefit. It strikes me as a, as a partial mitigation to a tremendous issue that we're going to have. I heard all of the people saying they support this project. Um, I'm humble enough to know I don't have a monopoly on wisdom. I could be wrong. Um, every person who spoke tonight spoke from a place of wanting the very best for this community, and so I have great respect for that. Um, but for me, uh, I'm a no. New council member Tucker Maggot is conflicted. The remaining three, including Mayor Marty Prohaska, are in support of the project. I think it really just comes down to taking the long view, and you know we have to live with this for a long time. Um, yeah, we also have to live with the consequences of denying this which I think would have an extremely chilling effect on any future developer who'd want to come in and build a property of this stature. That lot has long been contemplated to have a hotel on it. It completes the character. It, this is our last, this is in my opinion, the last opportunity we have to see our Mountain Village Corps built out to its pure and true highest aspiration. With a commitment to add certain verbal agreements into the formal development agreement on second reading, Councilmember Magid was swayed to vote in support of the hotel. Prohaska, Councilmembers Patrick Berry, Jack Gilbride, and Tucker Magid voted in support. Councilmembers Scott Pearson, Peter Dupre, and Harvey Mogensen voted against. Mountain Village Town Council will vote on the Six Senses Hotel development on second reading at its September meeting.
Like other area employers, the Telluride School District has housing woes. Potential hires often turn away as they can't find a place to live in the area. The district is now eyeing two lots it owns in Lawson Hill. Both house an existing building. One is home to the Rascals Toddler Program. But both lots are under density. So there's room to grow. And, you know, what we would like to do is to um, replace the Rascals building because it desperately needs replacement and put two one-bedroom units above it is kind of our ideal. That's John Pandolfo, superintendent of the Telluride R1 School District, speaking before town council this week. Simultaneously, the district is hoping to purchase a small parcel of land adjacent to their holdings in Lawson. This would allow them to build, in total, four one-bedroom units to house district employees. Pandolfo explains. What we have experienced that we have a higher need for is one-bedrooms, which is why we're really looking to increase that. We currently have more three- and two-bedrooms than one-bedrooms, so that so this really fits well into that plan of what our needs are. It was the issue of water which brought Pandolfo before council. In order to move forward with the additional units, the town of Telluride will need to update its water usage agreement with the Lawson Hill Homeowners Association. To gauge the water use of the potential units, the school completed a study. Because a one-bedroom unit could technically have two occupants, the study assumed all the units would house two. Um, However, what we're really looking at from an experiential standpoint is our one-bedroom units are pretty much single occupancy. So I don't believe the water usage would even be that high. For council, the level of detail was appreciated, but ultimately unnecessary. Here's council member Geneva Shawnette, whose thoughts you can hear are echoed by others. I think with the amount of other neighborhoods that we've already considered that we can afford to extend water to, the difference of a few units is just not even a blip on my radar. And I think this is a no-brainer for all of us, right? Yeah, completely agree. Council was more concerned about impacts to the Rascals' daycare program. Pendolfo ensures council the new building would still house the Rascals, and the daycare is supportive, even though it would be displaced during construction. Obviously, the logistics of displacing a child care at a time when we all need child care as well is pretty critical, but we're looking at ways to try to really minimize that and support them in doing it, even if that were to mean using some of the school facilities um, for you know, part of a summer when we don't need them and they need somewhere to have daycare. The town will seek to update its agreement with the Lawson Hill homeowners before the school has an official go-ahead. It's been three years since Telluride has spent an evening with the documentarian Ken Burns, but the hiatus is over. After the pandemic, the Telluride Historical Museum is once again hosting Burns at the Palm Theater for a film screening, Q&A, and book signing. This year, the program will highlight Burns' first documentary, Brooklyn Bridge. The 1981 film explores the planning and construction of the bridge and its ensuing status as a cultural landmark. Following his directorial debut, Burns went on to a lauded career exploring icons of Americana and telling the story of our shared history. The screening takes place on Sunday, August 27th at 6 p.m. with doors at 5.30 at the Palm Theatre. Tickets are available at telluridemuseum.org. The town of Telluride passed amendments to its land use code this week when it comes to basements on steep lots and consolidation of certain lot lines. 
By passing the amendments, the town of Telluride will lift a suspension on accepting certain building applications. In collaboration with the Historic and Architectural Review Commission and the Planning and Zoning Commission, Town Council approved amendments to establish an absolute residential size limit for the Residential Commercial Zone District, clarify language around Ballot Question 300, passed back in 2015, amend the list of public benefits offered in return for a planned unit development, and eliminate new construction of double basements in residential zone districts. The suspension will be lifted on Friday, August 25th, and the town will begin accepting building applications. A politically charged ballot measure has been cleared for the polls by the Colorado Supreme Court. The measure, Proposition HH, is a response to spiking property taxes fueled by rising property values. It would reduce property valuation rates and allow property owners to exempt part of their property's value from taxation. The court ruled on Monday that the measure does not violate the state's single-subject rule. That's a law preventing a statute from addressing more than two unrelated issues. The decision ends a months-long statewide political battle over the measure. Following this year's property value assessments, many residents across the state saw their home values skyrocket, including here in San Miguel County, where the average property increased by nearly 50 percent. The proposition will be an opportunity for voters to have a say in how the new valuations will affect their tax burden. Saturday, August 26, marks the historic anniversary of the certification of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution back in 1920, which solidified the right of some women to vote. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KVNF Lisa Young spoke with Nancy Ball from the local League of Women Voters, serving Delta, Montrose, and Uray counties, about the historic event. Well, certainly the League would like uh, people to understand what those women went through for 72 years. That's Nancy Ball, League of Women Voters of the Uncompahgre Valley, talking about the struggle of the suffragettes in America and their fight to gain voting rights. The nonpartisan activist grassroots organization believes voters should play a crucial role in democracy. We need to use that right that was fought for so hard by our courageous four mothers, because if we don't vote, other people are going to make decisions that affect our lives. In light of the upcoming anniversary of the 19th Amendment, the National League of Women Voters is calling upon lawmakers to shore up women's rights, noting that women have fewer rights than they'd had in decades. The League wants lawmakers to pass voting rights legislation, add the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution, and restore reproductive rights to women and those who can become pregnant. For KVNF, I'm Lisa Young. The Great Salt Lake is the largest saltwater lake in the Western Hemisphere, and it will soon dry up if no action is taken. Brigham Young University professor Ben Abbott, working alongside a team of 32 researchers and managers, released an emergency briefing on the Great Salt Lake earlier this year. 
For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KRCL's Lara Jones spoke with Professor Abbott about the challenges and potential solutions the lake faces. The situation at Great Salt Lake is is extremely serious, even with the big snow year that we had. That's only given us a, a, a couple of years of additional time to implement the water saving measures that we need. Um, if we look at the, the natural long-term level of the lake, we've lost about 75% of the water and two-thirds of the surface area of the lake. And this, of course, is a, a real threat to our community, everything from our air quality, industry, and cultural identity depends on taking care of this lake. So it's, a, it's definitely an all-hands-on-deck emergency. Professor Abbott, as mentioned in uh, by Dita Seed, there is this threat to the Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge from the inland ports. There's this um, hay exporter. And we were talking about this the other night and someone called them and said, can you please address animal, livestock, or, or farming impacts on the Great Salt Lake? And I know there's been this kind of push-pull, but hey, we got to eat. We got to grow our vegetables. We got to grow our f- livestock feed, um, all of that stuff. So given the emergency briefing that you did, what what do you have to say about um, animals and uh, and farming on the Great Salt Lake? How it affects it? Yeah, well, those are really insightful questions. And w- one of the points I really try to emphasize is we can't let this devolve into a urban areas versus agricultural areas. We need everybody doing all that they can. But the lion's share of the water use is coming from agriculture, and more than half of that agricultural water use isn't being used to raise food for people. It's raising feed for livestock. And so there really are some extremely hard and even threatening questions that we need to discuss about, is the amount of acreage of alfalfa in the watershed sustainable? Um, Now there are ways that we can get more crop per drop. um, And so we can use the water more efficiently agriculturally. That likely is only going to get us halfway toward the savings that we need to reverse the decline of the lake. And so we need, I, I kind of see it as a two-stage um, solution. We need some emergency interventions now, some really muscular uh, executive action that gets water to the lake to stabilize it. That's the sprint part. And then the long term, we need some policy changes and even some cultural changes um, about how we're living, what kinds of la- outdoor landscapes we find beautiful, and how the agricultural economy is functioning. Professor, I, I know Utah Lake might be a dirty word for you, but uh, Diva Seed was just talking about um, the inland ports and its impact on the Great Salt Lake and now perhaps Utah Lake. Is this something that is attracting your attention in terms of studying and uh, applying some science to? The message we need to get across is that all of these water bodies are connected. It's all part of the same watershed. And so the way that we're managing um, the landscape, the way that we're managing Utah Lake and Bear Lake, that all trickles down. It literally trickled down to Great Salt Lake. And so the the efforts that we um, that we make to conserve water, that's going to help restore the levels of Great Salt Lake. It's also going to improve the water quality of Utah Lake. The subsidizing development in sensitive wetland areas really does not help. And, um, you know, the same way... That, it's not a categorical, we can't have agriculture. We need development, right? There, We have a growing population. We need places for those people to live, but it needs to be really thoughtful and coordinated development that's water-wise so we can make sure that our communities are viable over the long term. 
So in your briefing paper released, I think it was in January of this year, what are some takeaways that you'd like to leave with our get, with our listeners tonight, rather? You know, the, the number... The number one thing to keep in, well, I guess there are two, there are two points I want to emphasize. The first one is we are not alone in this problem. There are around 120 of these large saline lakes around the world. Nearly all of them are in decline. Um, and, the, and it's the same story that we're seeing here. It's because of irrigated agriculture primarily, um, overuse of water. And so there are lessons to be learned from those lakes. And also this is an opportunity for us to really be pioneers because nobody has cracked the code. So this is a really hard ecological challenge. Um, and I think that we should be asking ourselves, do we have what it takes to buck that trend? Um, and this, the second point is the thing that we need even more than water is trust. Because if we can trust each other, if we can work together rather than devolving into like a Hunger Games style battle for more and more water, if we can each do our part and say, how much can we give back rather than how much can we get? I am confident that we can solve this problem. Yeah, I feel I, I get what you're saying about that issue of trust. It's like, no, you go first. No, you go first. From the small you know, homeowner to um, the large alfalfa grower, Professor. And, and even I've heard people talk about, oh, well, if we conserve the water, it's not going to make it to Great Salt Lake, right? It's going to be used by somebody downstream. And I've heard Teresa Wilhelmson, the state engineer, uh, who's really excellent, she's mentioned, conserve some water, and then we, I promise you, we'll figure out how to get it to the lake, right? Let's start, we need somebody to take that first step. And, and Salt Lake County is, is one of those people, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, making that donation. We're going to have people coming out of the woodwork um, to develop that trust. Well, Professor, I just want to go back to you on this issue one more time. And that is that it seems like when we initially have this conversation about the water needs for, you know, growing crops or raising livestock, it drives city and county mice apart, but uh, city and country mice apart. But is there an opportunity to actually bring us together to more fully understand where our food comes from and what it requires and to understand each other better and to mutually support each other in seeking the best way to grow and water our crops and our livestock. Yes, I absolutely. It, as as the mayor um, implied, right? We we need to support these uh, rural communities that have been left out of a lot of the economic growth going on um, in the urban areas along the Wasatch Front, and there is a way where farmers are compensated. So there's a well-developed concept called deficit irrigation, where we would pay them, for example, to not do a third cutting of alfalfa. This isn't going to put them out of business. In fact, it can um, shore up their finances because they'll be making more net profit than they would be on that pretty marginal third cutting. Um, so there are ways that we can be creative. Um, on the other hand, we need to be realistic about the consequences of failure. Uh, and the, the the fact is that we're, we're not talking about either saving Great Salt Lake or not saving Great Salt Lake. We're talking about, are we going to save the lake on our own terms, coming together as a community? Or is there going to be um, federal in intervention that forces us to make really abrupt and much less uh, consensual and compensated changes? So I, I think that it's something that can bring together liberals, conservatives, and independents. Um, we want to leave a better future. Thank you, Professor. I really appreciate your time. 
The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for a 90% chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight with a low around 45 degrees. Friday, showers are likely with a high in the mid-60s during the day and a low in the mid-40s at night. Saturday calls for showers in a high around 70 degrees. Saturday night should be partly cloudy with a chance of showers and a low around 45. This has been the news for Thursday, August 24th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. We would like to thank everyone who has donated to Kodo during our summer fund drive. A huge thank you to Samuel Edward Aaron, Robert Allen and Peggy Lee Redford, John Welch Jr., Kimberly Arvalo, Debbie Garino, Thomas Goodwin, Katie Basil, Scott Upshur, Michelle St. Ange, Steve Patterson, Maddie Crowell, Scott Offen, Dev Matwani, Aiden Michael Green, Tommy Toons, Keaton and Paige McCargo, Dan Houlihan, Jane Shivers, Steve Green, Don Swearinga, Jenny Page, Scott Hellman, Chris Niles, Rick Gomez, Jareb and Katie Carter, Pat and Laura Daly, Megan Daughters, Rick and Liz Salem, Kathleen Erie and Harry Hartman, Hillary and Kyle Swenson, Robert Peter, and King B. Felker. Thank you all so much. Thank you.